The book of Joshua is the first of what we call the historical books in the Bible. For the first time on Wednesday nights, we are making a transition of genre. And even though Genesis and Exodus have a lot of history in them and a lot of narrative in them, they are the first five collectively called the books of the law because they all exist to support and establish the old covenant and the law, which of course had its fulfillment in Jesus. And then once you hit the book of Joshua, going all the way through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, these are the historical books. Lots of stories, given the historical background of all the different prophets. And the plan is just to go straight through. We'll skip over Chronicles uh, because it's a repetition of Kings. We'll come back to it eventually. But go straight through to Esther and get the whole history done. But it's interesting to know that the Hebrew Bible, the English Bible takes its organization from the Greek Old Testament. Now, there's not anything spiritual about either one, but the Hebrews actually regarded Joshua as the first of what they called the former prophets. They included Samuel on that list as well. And that's, of course, Joshua is very different in genre from something like Hosea, for example. But they considered Joshua himself to be a prophet, and that's why he was placed in that category. But uh, this is the first of the historical books, and we're going to be in this for some time. Joshua is also unique because it serves as a bridge from the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which means law or instruction, and the rest of the Old Testament. That the, the stage has been set for everything else that is going to happen after this. The whole rest of the Bible is going to be referring back to Moses and what God did with Moses. But Joshua is, is still telling that story. It's still very much connected. Even when we get to Judges, which is also very close to what happened in Joshua, you'll tell an immediate difference. There's a different in tone. There's a different in storytelling uh, and the, the way that it's written. So because Joshua serves as a bridge in that way, there have been several people that have speculated about where it ought to fit in the Old Testament. And uh, there's always a new way of organizing the scriptures that comes out and it, it sweeps through the world and people get into it and they get real excited about it and then somebody comes along and pokes a few holes in it and it kind of deflates and that's what's happened with Joshua. For a while at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, people were advocating for something they called the Hexateuch, which would be the first six books of the Bible, that Joshua really belongs with Deuteronomy, that it it's belongs with that first category of books. This also, however, was based on what was called the documentary hypothesis, which is a way of explaining how the Old Testament came about, that it wasn't written as we have it, but that it was put together and stitched together after the exile in the years just before Jesus Christ came. This was a hypothesis that just was made up uh, and was taken as gospel for a very long time. And the people that held to that believed that they could see in Joshua similarities to the style of what was written in Deuteronomy, especially, and, but even the books before that. However, as, as time went on, people began to realize that there was, in fact, more distinction than there was similarity. And as the documentary hypothesis itself began to lose steam, thank God for godly men that pushed back on that one, uh, that theory went by the wayside. Although I will say, I think there is some thematic value to thinking of Joshua that way, that it is kind of tied to Deuteronomy. But the next one was something called the Deuteronomistic history. Yes, Deuteronomistic is a word, if, in case you didn't know that. But apparently, Deuteronomistic history. This was put forth more recently, I believe around the 1940s, kind of a successor to that, that sort of took the opposite but related approach, that Joshua really belongs to uh, the, the history that comes after, that Joshua judges 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings were really one unit, kind of like how Luke and Acts really go together. There's one unit. This was the, the proposition, and that whoever had put Deuteronomy together and kind of finished off the Torah was also the one that wrote Joshua through Kings. But that has also started to lose steam because you come to it and you say, well, it really doesn't match as much as we would like it. Although I do think that Joshua serves in a bridge in that way too, thematically, that it is the first that leads us into the history of the promised land, which of course will end in the exile from the promised land. So there's lots of different ways of looking at this. We're kind of circling back around to a position that's called canonical theology, which says, you know, we can speculate about how it got stitched together, but what we have is a book called Joshua. 
And we ought to just take it at face value, which is, you know, something that uh, fundamentalists, if you want to use the pejorative term, have been banging on about for an awful long time. Of course, there's all sorts of uh, other opposition that comes to it, but uh, it is a book that is a bridge. If you do any kind of background history in Joshua, you'll come across those other theories. Uh, but really, most of it is, is helpful, but it's not certain, and it's not even that persuasive to most people. So that's how it functions in the canon. Let's ask this question now. Who did write this book? Who is the author of the book of Joshua? Because the previous idea was, well, there might have been as many as 10 or 12 different authors. It was really written by a community of people. That's a very postmodern idea that you hear all the time. It wasn't written by Isaiah. It was written by the Isaianic community that wrote it. And, and what's their evidence for that? Well, none, really. It's just, you know, it sells books, I suppose. But the book actually tells us, Joshua 24, verse 26, at the end, tells us that Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Well, that's, that's pretty persuasive, in my opinion, anyway. Joshua wrote these words. However, if you want to get technical about it, it seems that the, that verse might not be referencing the entirety of the book of Joshua, but the most recent section that he wrote down. But it is very plain. Joshua was writing things down, and Joshua did not see it as something he could not do to add to what Moses had written. So that's there in the book. Remember, you see the process of canonization in the Bible itself. We've talked about that before. However, you do have the same problem with Joshua that you have with Deuteronomy. When you come to the end and it narrates the death of Joshua, and it gives a little eulogy of who he was and how great he was, and now clearly Joshua didn't write that. Some people who really want to hold the line on this one will say, well, Joshua was a prophet and he was inspired to write it down before his own death. Well, that's an entirely possible, uh, but... I also don't see any reason why a godly man like Eleazar the priest or his son Phineas or another godly man that God raised up could have gone back, taken the writings of Joshua, finished them out, and put it into what we have as its final form today. So mostly Joshua is what we'll say, and I probably will only refer to him as we continue through this, which would also explain why the language and the style of Joshua is very similar to Deuteronomy, but different enough that we can't quite put it in the same category. So then, when was it written? This is another big question, and there are many people that have opinions about when the book was written, and that causes them to make a determination about who wrote it. Well, if we're going to take the book as it is written, there are actually several indications in the book that let us know when it would have been finished. Remember, Joshua wrote most of this, so it would have been written in his time. But if, there, if somebody did come back and smooth it out and finish it, which I certainly have no problem with, when would this have happened? Now, if you're going to be a liberal scholar, you're going to say, well, it probably wasn't finished or even started, as they believe, until the last couple hundred years before Christ, during the Hasmonean dynasty. But I don't think you can do that because there are 14 references in the book of Joshua where it says something happened and was so until this day. You can see that 14 times in the book of Joshua. To this day. Like, we raised up the 12 stones and they are there to this day. We buried so-and-so and his tomb is there to this day. Well, there's a couple of them. I'll just point out one because it requires the least explanation. That we know when it stopped being true. And that comes in chapter 15, verse 63 when it talks about the conquest of Jerusalem, when it's talking about all the nations that were not conquered during the time of Joshua, which was reserved for the generations that would come later, it says that the Jebusites still dwelt in Jerusalem as they do to this day. The Jebusites held Jerusalem. Now we know when the Jebusites stopped holding Jerusalem. It was during the reign of David. In David's seventh year, they conquered Jerusalem and he made it his capital city, which is when it became Jerusalem as we know it today. So that tells us that this book had to have been completed before the reign of David, which is pretty early. If you want to look at it in, in most, according to most people's schemas and how they go through it. So some people have speculated, well, maybe Samuel finished off the book of Joshua, took the writings of Joshua, put it in the form we have today. But that's sort of speculation because the Bible doesn't say and the Lord could have raised up whomever he wanted to finish this book. We don't know who wrote a lot of the books of the Bible and that does not affect their canonicity or their inspiration uh, because the Lord knows who it was and that's enough. 
So when was it written? When was it completed, shall we say? Definitely started during the reign of Joshua and at least completed before the time of David. That gives us a pretty firm date of when this would have been, been done. And it fits exactly what we should expect for a book like this to be written. What was the purpose of this book? Why was it written? We know who wrote it, mostly at least. And we know when it was written with some, a pretty good degree of certainty. Why? What's the why of this book? Well, it's pretty simple. It was written for two reasons. Number one, to record the conquest. Just to tell the story. I'm reading a lot of these introductions and sometimes I'm like, people forget that part. It's like, what was his theological reason? Like, well, there might have been theological reasons, but there also were just, you know, historical reasons. That's to tell you what happened. But if you don't believe Joshua is history, then you don't really want to talk about that so much. But we do. It was to record the conquest, to record the story, to tell what happened. And Joshua's not going to give us the whole narrative of every battle of the campaign. He's going to give us highlights. He's going to talk about Jericho when it fell. He's going to talk about the failure and then the success at Ai. He's going to talk about uh, the Gibeonites and how they fooled the people. Not when the sun stood still. He's not going to give every battle. He wanted to record what God did. And the theological reason for that was to reinforce the covenant. The book of Deuteronomy was Moses banging on for 34 chapters. Keep the covenant, please. Well, Joshua is going to reinforce that. He's going to tell the story, but he's also at the end, you know the verse, going to end with a very strong call to choose who are you going to serve. Are you going to serve the Lord or are you going to serve these false gods that we just defeated by the power of the Lord? That's the purpose, to record the conquest and to reinforce God's covenant. And we do believe, in fact, that this was history. We believe that this happened. And if you're a believer and you love your Bible, I, I would assume that's what you naturally think. However, as many of our young folks have learned when they go off to college and you get put into a history of religion class or you find something online, a lot of people want to let you know that, well, you know nobody actually believes that it was history, right? Well, professors can say whatever they want. We do believe that this is history. The uh, opposition usually comes in terms of archaeology. And here's the most common argument you hear about why Joshua and the story couldn't have happened the way that it happened. Most people agree that the Jews took possession of the land at some point, but they don't, wanna, they don't ever want to admit that it happened the way the Bible says. And they'll say, look, we've been doing diggings throughout the land of Israel. We've been excavating these places, and we're not finding evidence from that layer of rock that showed these cities that were burned to the ground and sacked. So it couldn't have happened that way, which sounds you know, rather distressing if you're a believer and you hear that for the first time. But what I was reminded of when I was studying this is the children of Israel very specifically did not burn the cities to the ground. That's what God told them you are not going to do. He said, I'm going to send you in there. You're going to wipe out all the inhabitants. But as he told them, you're going to take possession of pre-built cities. You're going to live in houses that somebody else has built. You're going to take care of fields and, and uh, livestock that somebody else has harvested. The only cities that we know that were destroyed in the land of Israel were Jericho, the obvious one, right? I, you might have heard that called AI, but it's just one syllable, I. And the other one is Hazor, only three cities. So the, the most strong argument that people put forward about why Joshua can't be truthful is based on a premise that the book itself doesn't even claim. You ever been in an argument with something, somebody and they're trying to attack something that you don't even think? <laughs> like, what are you arguing with me for? I don't think that either. Well, that's kind of what we have. But we will take a day, probably when we get to the story of Jericho, when the walls came tumbling down, uh, when we are going to look into the archaeology in detail. And we're going to talk about this. My dad is a huge biblical archaeology buff. And, he, and when he found out I was doing Joshua, he sent me way more stuff than I'll probably be able to sort through. But I will do my best. And we'll talk about it because it's, it's very faith building uh, to get into that. But the other problem that comes up, if you want to call it that, when you get to the book of Joshua, is the moral problem that most people have with the conquest itself. The children of Israel, you're telling me, they went into this land and they slaughtered all the people, men, women, and children? That is what the book says. And then there are even believers that come to this and say, well, Jesus told us to turn the other cheek, so even if that is what happened, God could not have approved of such a thing. Or at the very least, they're embarrassed and don't want to talk about it. Or they spend all their time trying to explain, well, it really wasn't that bad. I do not think that's a persuasive way of going about it, all right? 
But many people for that reason are predisposed to hate the book of Joshua. In the day in which we live, many people are like, this is colonialism, it's imperialism, which yeah, it kind of was. So if you hate those things, you're going to not like this book so much. But as I've just demonstrated, before we start evaluating its contents, we are sure of the integrity of the book of Joshua. We know that it was written the way that we have it and has been preserved carefully. We are also sure of its canonicity, meaning it has always, ever since there has been a recognized canon, it has always been part of the canon. So we know it's God's word, which means, number three, we have to accept its theology as it is presented to us. You do not get to come to the books of the Bible and sit in judgment of them, even if you feel like you can make a pretty good case for it. We don't allow that with any other subject, and we're not going to allow it with the book of Joshua either. We are not going to take the time to get into this tonight, but there will be a day, I believe when we get to around chapter 13, 14, we're going to spend the whole night addressing this issue of war, violence, conquest in the book of Joshua. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. I do not intend to apologize for the contents of what the scripture has. And I think there is a big lesson for us as 21st century Americans to learn about what the Bible teaches us about war and battle and violence in general. But the book of Joshua also sets up a very important theme that is going to run through the rest of scripture. The theme of entering into the promises of God. Up until this point, we've seen the Lord making promises, maintaining promises, reaffirming promises, reminding people of promises. And Joshua, they're going to go get it. They're going to receive the promises of God. And the big theme that's actually going to be introduced in chapter one here today is the theme of God's rest. That you're going to find rest with a capital R. You're going to find Shabbat, Sabbath, in this land. And of course, the book of Hebrews, most of all, will develop this in the New Testament as exactly what we find in Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the one that has gone down through the waters, which is a symbol of the grave, and come out to the other side and conquered every foe and delivered rest, Shabbat, to his people. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that the name Joshua is the same name as our Lord Jesus in its original language. They both mean the same thing. So as we look at this Old Testament Joshua, he's going to prefigure our New Testament Joshua, our ultimate Joshua, who's going to lead his people out of the wilderness, through the waters, and into the promised land. All right? Is that enough introduction for you? Let's get into this. First six verses of the book of Joshua, and this will be our first section for tonight. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, who had been pronounced Nun, but I've been saying Nun for a long time, and I'm going to stick with it. Moses' assistant, the Lord said, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. I love this verse. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea going toward the sun, or toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Well, the book starts with some context after the death of Moses. And that's a, that's a loaded little clause there, isn't it? After the death of Moses. Contained in that sentence, 40 plus years of Israelite history with, as it calls him, the servant of the Lord. The man of God. The one that spoke to God face to face. The one you will remember that after his encounter with God at Sinai, face was shining and had to cover it with a veil. That Moses. And now Moses is dead. The story ended with Moses' admonition to keep the law as they entered the promised land. 
They had been delivered out of Egypt through the 10 plagues. They had gone through the Red Sea. Moses had led them to Sinai where they had received the law and built the tabernacle. They had gone to the promised land, but turned away because of their own cowardice, condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, through which Moses faithfully led them. But because of his own sin, he himself was not permitted to enter the promised land. He led them in defeating Sihon and Og, the Amorite kings, on the eastern shore of the Jordan. But he himself was not allowed to enter in. And that was the last thing we saw in the book of Deuteronomy. I'll just read this verse from Deuteronomy 34, verse 8, to remind you. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. So there is a 30-day gap, more or less, between Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. So there they sit when this book opens across the Jordan River, mourning. Moses is no more. He is now a name of the past. He's no longer with them. And the word of the Lord comes to Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun of the tribe of Ephraim. We have met him many times before. And there's several important moments that I'll remind you of as we get started here. In Exodus 17, the first time we saw him, he led the army in battle against the Amalekites. This was the first battle the Israelites fought when they were on their way to Mount Sinai and there were people that were tired, that were hungry, that were starting to fall out and the Amalekite raiders came upon them and started to attack the rear of the company. Joshua was the general that led the Israelites in battle while Moses had his arms held up by Aaron and Hur. You remember that story. Joshua was the general. In Exodus 24, we see him attending Moses on Mount Sinai, that he went up with Moses and waited while Moses went higher and heard from the Lord. Great symbolism there. He also was the one that when the golden calf episode happened, he told Moses, there's a battle in the camp, Moses. And Moses is like, nah, it's not a battle, but it's about to be. <laughs> Exodus 33 we read a, a sense of the spirituality of Joshua, that Moses pitched the, the tabernacle of meeting, the tent of meeting, which was separate from the sanctuary, outside the camp where Moses would go and pray. And it was wonderful because when Moses would go pray, the pillar of cloud and fire would travel to the tent to meet with Moses. Well, it tells us in Exodus 33, Joshua basically lived there. He said, if this is where God is, I'm not leaving. He's got a tenacity about him, this guy. It's good. He's going to need it. In Numbers chapter 11, we see his loyalty to Moses. When Moses prayed for help and God poured out his Holy Spirit on the 70 elders of Israel, they prophesied and then they stopped. But there were two people in the camp that were not called forward that began to prophesy and continued to prophesy. And Joshua got jealous for Moses. And said, hey, tell him to cut that out. You're the prophet, not them. And Moses is like, Joshua, I wish you guys were all prophets. Numbers 14 is really his crowning moment, other than the book itself, where he was one of the two faithful spies alongside Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who went into the promised land, came back, and said, we can take them. The other 10 all said, there's no way we're going in there. They're giants. They're mighty. They're strong. And we're going to get killed. But Caleb and, and Joshua stood there, tore their clothes, and no, we can do it. The Lord is with us. They're bread for us, they said, which is Hebrew trash talk, kind of like we're going to chew them up and eat them for breakfast. They're bread for us. But of course, you know, unfortunately, children of Israel refused to go in. But Joshua, alongside Caleb, was given the honor of being the only man who would survive the wilderness wandering and actually take part in the conquest. And in Deuteronomy 31, we saw him ordained by Moses, actually ordained by the Lord. The Holy Spirit came upon him in front of all the people. And his name, Joshua, used to be Hosea, very similar to the prophet Hosea. Hosea, which means salvation. His name meant salvation. And you can imagine the hope of Joshua's parents working as slaves in Egypt, naming their son something like that. There's hope there, and they obviously instilled that in their son, too. But when Moses started to take Joshua under his wing, Numbers 13, 16 tells us he changed his name to Yehoshua, which is Hosea, with Yah at the beginning. Yah as in Yahweh. Now, the vowels would change according to the forms of the language, Yehoshua. And when that gets anglicized, we get the name Joshua. But his name means the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah God, is salvation. So 
salvation. But when he came with Moses, Moses is like, yeah, I love salvation too, but let's not forget where it comes from. So that's Moses. I'm sorry, that's Joshua's story. That's who he is. It also is exciting to know that Jesus' name is the same. His name would have been uh, in Aramaic, Yeshua, which is a form, of course, of Joshua, just like Mary's name was a form of Miriam's name. But Jesus' name means the Lord is salvation. That's just perfect, isn't it? And it's interesting, actually, if you read the book of Joshua in the Greek, his name is Jesus, so, which is, of course, the, the Greek form of Jesus' name as well. There's a lot of amazing typology you can draw, parallels between Joshua and Jesus, their name just being the beginning of it. Right here, he is designated as Moses' assistant. Not a very uh, lofty title, is it? The assistant of Moses. Moses is called the servant of the Lord, and he's the assistant. But it's actually cool. We'll come back to this because Joshua was destined to be way more than the assistant of Moses. And when you come to the end of the book, Joshua 24, 29, God is going to call Joshua the servant of the Lord. So this whole book, you could say, is a picture of Joshua going from being the assistant to the servant of the Lord to becoming the servant of the Lord in his own right. It's a pretty cool thing. He has a destiny that he's going to follow. Well, God speaks to him, and he kind of rather bluntly gets his attention. Like, Lord, is that you? Yes. Oh, what do you have to say to me, Lord? Moses is dead. Indeed he is, Lord. Now, perhaps this was an actual announcement from God because Moses went up the mountain and nobody saw where he was buried. The Lord himself buried him. So maybe that was God's indication. Moses is indeed dead. But it is blunt. God is like, Moses is with me now. That season's over. Let's move on to the next one. God is kind of a fan of fast transitions. Have you noticed that? He says, it's time to cross the Jordan and take possession of the land. And he actually gives a, a picture of the land that you could trace on a map. And first he goes from south to north, the wilderness, the Negev, which is down in the south, to the Lebanon, which is to the north of Israel, famous for its cedar trees. Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates, which is to the east, all the land of the Hittites, which is the northeast at this time, they were a rival empire to the Egyptians, to the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. So he's giving them boundaries on all these different sides. That's a huge swath of territory that won't even be seen in Joshua's time. David and Solomon will get very close, but Israel will have a hard time holding it because of their sin. But this territory, this land with a capital L, is that which was promised to uh, Joshua's forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I know it's been a long time since we've been in Genesis, and a lot of you all might not have even been attending here at the time, but we've got to keep going back to what we learned beforehand so that we can realize that all of these beginnings are being fulfilled. So I'm going to read selected verses here from Genesis 15, verses 13 through 18. I'm going to skip around a little bit just to make it a little smoother. Uh, feel free to go read the whole thing on your own if you think I'm cheating here. I promise I'm not. But let's start verse 13. God says this to Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Did that happen? Yes, it did. They were slaves in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Did that happen? Yes, exodus means coming out, like exit. And verse 16, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, there they are, they're back. And the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. We're going to talk about it. But verse 18 of that chapter, the Lord said to Abraham, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Lord had promised Abraham all the way back before even Isaac was born. And now the time has come. It's all been fulfilled except taking possession of the land. They had a 40-year delay, and you can almost hear the impatience of the Lord here. It's like, all right, long enough. <laughs> Let's get in there. Let's get after this. And Joshua was to be the one to lead them. God promises him success. He promises him victory. What man doesn't want to be told what Joshua was told? That no man will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. And he says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I will give to you. I love that verse. 
It's so encouraging. And God says, I will be with you always. Therefore, here's the admonition. Here's the, the command God gives him. Be strong and courageous. Trust in my sovereign power. Trust that I'm giving this to you, that I'm with you, that no one can stop you. Believe that and then go act out like it's true. That's faith. Be strong and courageous. And this is the application, the theme that we're going to take home tonight. To be strong and to be courageous. The promised land, mostly in Christian writing, not so much in the Bible, actually, if you look closely, but you think of something like Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the promised land is compared very often to heaven. That eventually you're going to cross the River Jordan, right? How many great songs are written about crossing over Jordan and going into the promised land when we die? And that's, that's acceptable imagery. But in the Bible, more often, the promised land is viewed not as a picture of heaven, but of the abundant and blessed life in Christ. And the re one reason I can explain that to you is when you get to heaven, there's not going to be any giants for you to slay. But if you have passed through the waters, come out of the slavery to sin, met the Lord, passed through the waters of baptism, and come into the Christian life, there's giants to slay. And if you want to take hold of those promises, that's what you've got to do. And that's how we're going to apply this here tonight. That this is a symbol, a picture of walking in the fullness of the promises of God. And there's four different th things we're going to learn towards this subject here tonight that are all going to come out of the passage. And the first one, looking at what God has said to Joshua, here's what I'm going to do with you. Here's our first point. God has a plan for you and a plan for me. This, is, this used to be a very common thing that Christians said. God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. There's two Ps, plan and a purpose, plan and a purpose. And then you've got a bunch of cynical people on the internet that made a bunch of fun of it, and now it seems like nobody wants to talk about it anymore. But it is absolutely true that God has an individual plan and an individual purpose for your life. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul said, Let each one live the life to which God has called him. The life to which it could be translated, God has assigned him. Like you're showing up for Christian duty and God goes, All right, that's your life, go live it. Isn't that kind of cool to think that you've got a life that's been assigned to you? And of course, Ephesians 2.10, you all know this one. The first two verses before that we know very well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works as any man should boast, right? But verse 10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've got an assignment. You've got works prepared. You've got a divine to-do list. God has already set out the footprints for you, and you've got to walk in them. So I don't want to hear somebody that thinks they're too smart for Christian slogans and say, oh, the Bible doesn't say he has a plan and a purpose for our life. It certainly does. And yes, he certainly does. Joshua's purpose was to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And the plan was to slay every enemy until there was room for them. God has the same thing for you. And tonight I want to get into this because it's very common, even as I was doing my reading and prep for this, I realized this, for Christians to take this lesson and I think perhaps out of a desire to not go overboard or not to be excessive with it, which is a, perhaps an admirable thing, they, they only want to apply that lesson of a plan and a purpose for your life and promises of success and, and victory to religious matters. That God has a plan and a purpose for your Christian life. And we restrict that very narrowly to like reading your Bible and going on missions trips. That is a big part of it. We're going to get to that. But I'm here to tell you that it's bigger than that. Your whole life is bigger than that. The division between sacred and secular should never be drawn too tightly. That if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, if I'm a Christian, if my whole life has been given over to Jesus, then my workplace and my relationships and my education and my pastimes even are all brought under the submission of Jesus Christ. And it can be really miserable to live a Christian life thinking God's going to bless me and all of my religious stuff, but everything else is up to me. We do that sometimes. That's not good. And I realize that saying it like this might be something you're not used to, but let's get there. We need to get there. There are career aspirations that God has for you. You've got career aspirations. You know, whether you're still trying to figure it out or whether you've kind of, that ship has sailed for you, that's okay. 
know that God has the same thing for you? God has a career in mind for you. Or shall we say at least a way of going about your career that God has in mind for you. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's got something he wants you to do. He's got an opinion on it. You might have hashtag relationship goals. Some of y'all don't get that one. It's okay. Know that God has relationship goals for you too? That God's got a plan and a purpose for the way you interact with people, your marriage, your kids, your parents, your neighbors and friends? That God has goals for your relationships? You might have personal achievements that you consider and that you dream about. You know that God's got achievements that he dreams about for you too? And they're not necessarily reading through the Bible in one year, as great as that is. But there's other things too. God wants to fill every aspect of your life. Even, I'm going to go ahead and say this with all the appropriate cautions in place. I'll get to those in a minute. That God even has plans for your life to prosper materially and financially. You know, I realize there are excessive prosperity teachers, but the Lord loves to bless his kids. And I'm not just saying this as an American. You go around the world and you find where the Christians are living in a non-Christian culture, they are far and away surpassing the rest. Because God gives them, first of all, all the wisdom of the scripture of how to live life. But secondarily, it's like Job. God was so pleased with Job, he's like, have some stuff. <laughs> well, we're not supposed to live by bread alone. Yeah, that's still true. But God looks at your life and says, I want, I want your life to be great. I want it to be a fabulous life. And if you can't accept that, you're going to have this hidden idea that God wants to keep you miserable because you're not good enough. God wants to both reveal to you the life he has planned for you, and he wants to deliver that life to you. That every footstep you walk in is something he's going to grant you. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And it's not just related to your salvation. That's the beginning. That's the most important piece. But there's a whole life that comes out of that. And we need to retain that idea in our minds. Now, you're going to need strength and courage. We're going to talk about this. But I want to start by just accepting the fact that God has a plan and a good will for you. He's not a bad father. Now, his will might involve suffering, it might involve hardship, and it might involve lack and deprivation. But all of that is going to work for your good. Whatever cup God is giving you, you can guarantee it's going to be filled to the brim if you walk with Jesus. Joshua's job was to lead an invasion. Can that be God's will for somebody? Apparently so, because here it goes. So what about your life? Do you know what God's will is for your life? You got to find out. You got to find out. God has a specific will for your life. He might not give you every piece, but you should pray to find out the next one and go for that. It's time to step out. Well, let's look at the next one, verses seven through nine. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Man, take the last half of verse nine and memorize that one. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a great verse that is. Well, twice more in this section now, God is still speaking. Jo God tells Joshua again, be strong and very courageous. Three times now he has said that. So what do these words mean? What is strength? Strength is applied force. It is the exercise of a person's will. It is the ability to make the things you want to happen, happen. That's strength. And courage is the moral character to do so. Can we put it like that? Strength is the exercise of a person's will, and courage is the moral character to be able to do so. You might have the ability to do something, but if you don't have the courage to do it, it's not going to happen. And you might have the courage to do something, but if you don't have the strength to do it, it's also not going to happen. And we're going to need both of those things 
to find and fulfill God's will for our lives. You need to be strong and you need to be courageous. It means you cannot be weak and you cannot be cowardly. We could just preach on the opposites of that, couldn't we? Do not be weak and do not be cowardly, but rather strong and courageous. So the question becomes, okay, God's got a plan. How am I supposed to build up what I need in order to receive that? How do I become strong and courageous? Because obviously he's not talking only about physical strength here. Would have been part of it for Joshua's case anyway. But how do we build strength and courage? Well, God tells Joshua in this section, it is only through his word. He says, through this law. I can picture Joshua sitting there holding the book. The Lord says, this in your hands right there is how you are going to develop the strength and the courage to walk in the will that I have laid out for you. Joshua would need to be made into the man that God could use to conquer this land. Joshua was like a lot of us at one point in our life, applying for a job and you had no experience. Have you ever conquered a nation before? Well, can't say that I have. Well, how do you know you have what it takes? Well, God was going to give him what it took. He would conquer this land by becoming the man of God that the Lord could use, by obeying the law, by meditating upon it so that God would be with him. Hey, will you catch this? God said, Joshua, I will prepare you to be a warrior, a general, and a conqueror by having you read my word. Are you comfortable with that idea? Because it's in your Bible. And if you really don't like that, well, I'm going to ruin your day here. Psalm 144, verse 1. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love to continue and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. We are very comfortable talking about the Lord as a shield in this day and age, defensive, passive, but we need to get comfortable also of thinking God in offensive terms a sword as well as a shield, who subdues people under me. Joshua very literally would be trained for war by the word of God, which means the Bible is sufficient to train a man for war literally. That's just an interesting thought to consider. Because Israel was not independently mighty. They were not just some massive nation that were just going to roll over the world like the Mongols or the Huns, right? Just no one can stop them. The, Moses had told him, he's like, you guys are, are great, but you ain't that great. That's not why God picked you. It was the Lord who was with them. It was the God who was represented by the Ark of the Covenant in their midst that would subdue kings before them, and indeed already had subdued kings before them. Likewise, this is maybe a necessary balance to what I was saying earlier. You and I cannot just pluck out all the verses about God's blessings for life and leave behind all the rest of the stuff that talks about God's righteousness and his commandments. Those of you that were getting nervous, there you go. There's your, there's your balancing statement. Righteousness is a necessary condition for true godly success. Let me say that again. Righteousness is a necessary condition for true godly success. If you want to succeed in life, really succeed, you have to be righteous. Because righteousness makes you ready for success. That is our second point here tonight. The first one is that God has a plan. The second one is that righteousness makes us ready. So if God has works prepared beforehand, a life he's assigned you to, well, how am I supposed to go get it? Righteousness. Meditating on the word of the Lord. Let's look at a few of these domains of life that I mentioned earlier. Even if you achieve great career success, or so, let's put it this way. You say, I, wanna, I have career aspirations. I want to climb the ladder. I want to do well. I want to succeed at whatever it is. Okay? How do you expect to do that without God's wisdom? How do you expect to be the kind of person that can succeed if you are going to ignore all of God's wisdom from Proverbs and elsewhere about how to handle money, about how to deal with people, about how to avoid temptation, all that. God's word gives you the methods and the, the techniques, shall we say, the character to accomplish things. How do you expect to have a happy marriage without the Lord? Haven't you found that when your relationships are not working, it's because you, one or both of you is not walking with the Lord? One of you is not obeying some commandment of scripture or other? Well, I want to have a great marriage, but I don't know if I... You know, I'd love to claim the blessing of God for a great marriage, but I don't know if I want to obey any of those commandments. It doesn't work that way, pal. 
You, you keep the Lord's word. If you say, I'm not going to respect my husband, but I really hope that I have a great marriage. That's not going to work. Well, I'm not going to love that woman and, and dwell with her with understanding, but I really hope that my kids love me. They're not going to if you don't love their mama, right? I really hope that all of my neighbors will keep off my lawn and be nice to my kids, but I'm not going to love them like the Bible says. It's almost as if the commandments of God are not just given arbitrarily, but they're given because that is the road to a good life. You're going to accomplish something. Listen, people accomplish things every day. And then they go back and they are hungry for more. Why? Because it's so fleeting. How many of you have ever been disappointed by the feeling you got when you finally accomplished something you've been working forward for a long time? Oh, I have. When you finally get it, you're like, ha ha! All right, where are we going to lunch? <laughs> How do I maintain this? How do I keep this going? You know? And we see this with, with very high performers all the time, people that are at the top of their game and they're on drugs or they're suicidal or they're getting involved in corruption and crime because it's just not edgy enough for them. If you, but if you have the Lord with you, if you have something that is joyful, not just happy, now all of a sudden your accomplishments don't mean less, they mean more. Because I've done it as unto the Lord and God is pleased with me and everything is in place in my life and I can step back and enjoy this. Righteousness makes us ready for that. And how is God going to trust you with money without his teaching about how to handle money, by the way? You say, I'm going to go out and get rich quick. You know, the Bible tells you specifically not to do that. There's a verse in the Bible that says, do not acquire wealth quickly. Well, it didn't work out for me. Well, fancy that. God knew what he was talking about. The borrower is slave to the lender, the Bible says. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to borrow a bunch of money, buy a bunch of stuff, and then everybody will think I'm rich. Okay, now your creditors own you. God, why won't you get me out of this? He goes, I tried. You ignored the book. <laughs> I could go on like this. God has a great plan for your life, but you've, you've got to walk in righteousness to be made ready for these things. Jesus even said in Matthew 6, 31 through 33, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Says the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. It'd be weird to me if my children were to come up worried about what they were going to wear tomorrow. Father, do you think we'll have clothing Tomorrow? Yes. You had clothing yesterday, didn't you? I know, but tomorrow, I don't know what's going to happen. It's like, I'm your dad. Let me worry about that. You ever say that to your kids? Hey, I'm dad. Let me worry about it. Right? Your heavenly father knows. But what does he say in verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're going to talk the rest of the time today, and a lot more in Joshua too, because it's a great book about this subject, about achieving and receiving and finding and accomplishing the things God has for you. But in, in the midst of all of that, you've got to remember that it is righteousness and the kingdom of God that is the foundation of these things. And if you neglect that bit, you won't get the other thing. Or if you do, it won't be worth it. So what do you do? Well, do what God told Joshua to do. Take that book in your lap and make it your best friend. Read it. I mean, come on. <laughs> Read your Bible. It's funny because I'm not picking on my sons. They're good boys. But my boys will sit there with books, like a stack of books, and just like churn through the books in one day. And I'll go, read your Bible. I did. How much? One chapter. Because there's no demonic force trying to stop my son from reading Treasure Island. <laughs> but there is an enemy that does not want him reading the Gospel of Mark. Read the Bible. If you believe the Bible, read the Bible. Well, it's boring. I'm sorry. Maybe we can spice it up. Read the Bible, you guys. <laughs> Study the Bible. Well, it's too hard for me to understand. It might be hard to understand, but it's not too hard for you. You've got the author living in your heart. Memorize the Bible. Memorize scripture. Make up those goofy little songs that you had in VBS and remember them. Meditate on scripture. The word for meditate in Hebrew means to murmur. Meditation in the Hebrew context was a vocal thing. Almost like talking to yourself about the word, thinking out loud about God's word. And then once you've learned it, strive to obey it. Be a doer of the word. And as you obey the word, you will be sanctified into the kind of person that knows how to exercise great wisdom, who has great strength of character, who has admirable behavior, so that God can then fulfill all that he's planned through you. 
That God will shape you into the kind of person that can walk in all the things he's planned. If you will seek him first. Courage comes from the knowledge that we are on God's team. Unstoppable like he is. And you've got to be prepared according to the word. Because if you could see all the obstacles that were ahead of you now, you'd never go down that road. Oh, there's giants in the land. The Lord goes, yeah, there are, but guess what? I'm going to make you into the kind of man that can slay giants. What's better, to run away from giants and live or to slay giants? Rather do that, wouldn't you? The word makes you ready. So verse 10. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers, and you shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. There's rest. There's that important word. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So now God has spoken to Joshua. And very often God doesn't speak again until you've done the first thing he asked you to do. He's got to take command. And most importantly, he's got to take command of the tribes of what will come to be called Gilead, the Transjordan, the land on the eastern side of the river. Remember back in Numbers 32, after they had conquered Sihon and Og, the Amorite kings, and they had possession of this great pasture land, the tribe of Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh came to Moses and said, no disrespect, but can we stay here? This land is great. We've got a lot of cattle. It's perfect for our land. And Moses is like, uh, no, you can't stay here. We're going to go to battle without you? you? Your brothers need you. And they said, okay, what if we, we camp here, we set up here, we'll fight until the war is won, and then we get to go back. And the Lord said this was acceptable. I don't think they were in sin for doing this. The Bible does not condemn them for it. It's actually presented as a picture of the expansion of God's blessings. And Joshua has to make sure that these people are going to be true to their word and not back out now that Moses is gone. They knew Joshua. They had seen Joshua ordained, but this is still a critical moment where things could go very bad. Like, all right, time to go to battle. I'm like, I don't think so, Moses Jr. We're not following you. But what does Joshua do? He's obedient. He shows courage and strength by asserting his authority and calling others to follow him. He commands the people. That takes courage and that takes strength as well. You might be brave enough to say it, but if you don't say it with strength, nobody's going to listen to you. Um, hey, guys, I don't want to bother anybody, but we're getting close to the time where we're going to go fight. So if you could, like, whenever you're ready, that's not strength. Who wants to follow that general into battle? He says, prepare your provisions. We're moving out in three days, and I expect you people to be there. That's strength and courage. That's Joshua. We know that we need courage and we need strength to secure God's promises. We know that his word builds us into the kind of people that can accomplish those things. But there will come a day when the preparation is over and it's time to execute, to execute that strength and that courage. Reminds me of what David told to his son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. David's on his deathbed, and here's a famous verse, but then I'll tell you why David said this. David said to Solomon, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Man up, boy. Why was David telling him this? Because he was about to become king, yes. But if you keep reading, because David had a list of people that Solomon needed to execute the day David died. He said, your uncle Joab will steal this kingdom from you. If you do not put him to death on day one, you're going to lose the kingdom. Also, there's this guy named Shimei. Shimei cursed me and showed his true colors during the rebellion under Absalom. If you don't deal with him, he's going to come for you too. And so that verse that we love, be strong and show yourself a man. He's not talking about being sweet to your kids. 
He says to him, Solomon, in all of your wisdom, later on he says, you must do this. What is he saying? He says, Solomon, I know you're kind of a bookworm. I know you're much more of a peacetime ruler. I know that this is not what you want to do. But if you intend to hold on to this kingdom, you are going to listen to me, be a man, and execute these people. You're going to consolidate your power on day one. Without hesitation. So the next time you read that verse, remember that he's talking about putting his uncle to death. And David was a man after God's own heart before you start judging him, by the way. In such a pampered age in which we live, and I don't want to downplay the, uh, down, denigrate this too much. We live in an amazing time, an amazingly blessed golden age of history where we have so many blessings. It's the kind of thing that any family member scrubbing in the dirt to raise some rice for their kids would wish for. However, if we're going to live in an age like that, it is very easy to become indecisive and soft in matters that require strength of will. Very easy because everything is just there. It works. It's there for you. That you don't need to develop that intimidating glare. That you don't need to be strong. You even see this on TV. What do people need to be strong for? What do people need to have the ability to, you know, why do people need to go and box and work out? What difference does it make? Everything is great. It's foolish and naive, isn't it? We can even start to construct theology to support our timidity. We say that you shouldn't be strong like a man and that you shouldn't be able to swing a sword and you shouldn't be able to assert your will in a situation because that's not kind and that's not godly and you're not trusting the sovereignty of God. Never mind the fact that in his sovereignty, God has told us to be strong and courageous. So we need to watch out because this is an area where we can be weak. If you want to win the war, here's our point three, you have to swing the sword. Yes, God has a plan. And yes, the word of God, his righteousness will make you ready. But there will still come a day that if you want to slay giants, you've got to draw a sword and kill a giant. God was giving the land of Israel to his people, but they still had to win the battle. Was he going to be with them? Yes. Were they assured of victory? Yes. But they still had to get out there and fight. They still would have to get wounded. They still would have to get tired. They still would have to kill men. They still would have to go from house to house and wipe out the last of the inhabitants. They'd still have to set a watch at night and sharpen their swords and restring their bows. Trust in the sovereignty of God is not an excuse for inactivity and a neglect of his commandments. If you want to succeed at work, God has a will for me to be. I know I'm working the job God has called me to. Okay, then buckle down and do the work. Don't be showing up late. Don't be acting all irritated towards people. Don't cut out early and, and do a halfway good job. Don't join in all the complaints from everybody else. Do it like it's something God gave you. Your relationships. You've got to take action and take charge in your relationships. Guys, if you feel like you're not receiving the proper respect from your family, you need to assert yourself and demand respect. Now, can you do that like a jerk? Yeah. Or you can do it like a man and be the kind of person that people can respect. We can't always be passive Christians. We're like, well, I'm just going to do the right thing and hope they notice. Sometimes the right thing is to step up and say it with your chest. Look somebody in the eye and say, this is the way it's going to be. Ladies, same thing for you. It's not just for the guys here. If you feel like you're being neglected, if you feel like you're not being treated right, and it's not according to the word of the Lord, then you've got to say something. You've got to be like Bathsheba, who stomped into David's courtroom one day. <laughs> Said, hey, my son is supposed to be king. What are you going to do about it? Because uh, I believe his name was Ishbosheth, has just pronounced himself to be king. What are you going to do? Got to take charge. If you want to accomplish something, oh, God has this for me to do. God is going to be honored by this. All right, you still got to discipline yourself. How many people have great dreams of things that they're going to do someday? You think God is honored by you spending your whole life talking about someday and ever actually getting down to it and making it happen? That's a recipe for bitterness later on in life. When you spend your whole life looking at all these things that you were going to do and never did. You got to swing the sword. You've got to stop worrying about other people's opinions and do what you know God has called you to do. And that's something that happens too. It's like, well, I don't know if I really want to do so good because then people will think, if I go out there and try to get a good job, people in the church might think that I'm, you know, I'm just being materialistic. Well, are you? No. Then stop worrying about it. 
Well, I'm afraid that if I step up and if I go to war, that I, I might accidentally do something wrong. Well, are you trying to do God's will? Yes. Have you prayed about it? Yes. Is it as best as you can determine something God needs from you? Yes. But I don't know if this is exactly the way to go about it. Well, then can I give you a quote from a great Christian man that is very easy to take out of context? I trust you all enough to use your brains on this one. But when Martin Luther was in exile, and he was in the, in the castle translating the Bible, he had a disciple by a guy, named, a guy named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip Melanchthon was a scholar. All he wanted to do was write books. But the Reformation was not just a book thing. There were rebellions, and there was politics, and there were people getting like hanged and burned alive. And he's supposed to keep all these rowdy people in Wittenberg under control. And he kept on writing to Martin Luther saying, what about this? Is this a good idea? Should I do this? I can't decide. Here's five different verses that all say five different things. What am I supposed to do? And Luther, in a very Lutherian way, responded and said, Philip, just do what you got to do. And here's how he said it in, in his letter. He said, if thou must sin, sin boldly. Now, again, like I said, a verse would be very, a verse, not a verse, a saying would be very easy to take out of context, right? He's not saying go do the wrong thing. He says, if you're afraid that you might be doing the wrong thing, at least just do it. He's like, you know, I've got these people that are subversive in town. I think I ought to, let's say, exile them from the city. But is that too harsh? Would that be unkind? He goes, well, if you're going to do it, just do it and stop worrying about it. Just go for it. Do what you know will be the right thing for the right cause. Whether this is a tough conversation. I've got to say something to her, but I don't know if I want to. I don't want to hurt her feelings. I don't want to be unkind. I don't want to be judgmental. Maybe you just got to do it. You just got to swing the sword and say, Lord, if I'm doing the wrong thing, send an angel to stop me. Whether it's like I've got to actually sit down and make a plan for my life. I know some people that won't, plan, won't make plans or set goals because they think that God is somehow dishonored by that. Just do it. Or it's a big move. We're going to move from this job to this job. We're going to move from this town to this town. We're going to leave my family or her family or his family and go there because that's what I think that we're going to do. But I know I might offend some people and hurt some feelings. What am I supposed to do? If it starts the roll, just get going. Do you think that God gave Joshua every single detail of every single day? He said, go win the war. Ready, set, go. Jesus picked firebrands for his disciples, didn't he? He picked guys that you might not even want, like babysitting your kids. <laughs> Peter, Simon the Zealot, James and John the Sons of Thunder, Matthew the Tax Collector, Judas Iscariot. <laughs> that one's a little different. Why would Jesus pick guys like that? Because to be an apostle, you would need some grit, baby. You'd have to be able to stand against the whole world, look an emperor in the eye, and say, I'd rather die. And if they were going to spend their whole day worried about, well, what if I did the wrong thing? It's like, I need guys that have a little bit of guts, that are going to be sanctified in my righteousness so that their decision-making process is already brought under subjection to me, but who also have enough strength and courage to go for it. Some of you have been waiting long enough. It's time just to go for it in your life. Make a beginning, take a step, then take another step. And after a while, you will find yourself conquering the land that God has promised to you. Verse 16 through 18, coming to the end. Oh boy. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things. That makes me laugh. Did you really? <laughs> so we will obey you. <laughs> Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Well, that couldn't have gone any better. This generation was different than the previous one. They were ready. They were ready for this. And imagine the sigh of relief that Joshua felt. He took a step in strength and courage, and I'll bet you he would have felt much more likely to be strong and courageous in the future. And the people echo that call for the fourth time in this chapter. Be strong and courageous. They needed a leader who was going to set an example and never back down. Can you not see through this that courage and strength and will are godly character traits, not toxic ones? We can kind of get this really weird, like, namby-pamby, doily attitude with each other in the church. The Lord says things to his men like, be strong, be courageous. Go get it. Slay some giants, Joshua. 
We know God's got a plan. We know that it is righteousness that makes us ready. We know that we must swing the sword. You've got to take action. But here's the fourth one. This is my favorite part. Success is guaranteed. The land is yours to win. Even in areas like work and love and your personal life, even your finances and your ministry, Let's define success very carefully as the fulfillment of all that God has planned for you. Does this mean that you can go out there and say, well, that means that everything somebody else has is mine just by wanting it. No, it means that if God has put it in the plan and given it to you, you're guaranteed to get it. Because that's the kind of God we serve. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why do we think it's wrong to want things as Christians? Psalm 84, 11, the Lord our God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How many good things does he keep from us? Pretty cool. <laughs> Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How much can God do for you? More than you can think of. And how's he going to do it? Through a thunderbolt from heaven? No, through you. Put it this way. If you're walking in God's will, no one can stop you. So find it and do it. I, love, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. I went to Liberty University. We heard this story all the time. But Jerry Falwell used to take this passage and he'd read it. And he would go up on Liberty Mountain where he wanted to build the university. And he would walk every step of that campus. And you said, every footstep you're going to give to me. Now, we might hear that and go, that's not proper exegesis, Pastor Falwell. That's not the context. And that is true. But man, the Lord loves great faith. The Lord looks at that and goes, this guy right here. Do it like him. Do what he's doing. You know what? Sure, here you go. And now they have the largest Christian university in the world on that very spot. God loves great faith. Your career aspirations, or the ones that God has for you, will be fulfilled if you avoid the shadows. You know what a shadow career is? It's when you know what you should be doing, but you're scared to do it, so you do something that's kind of like that to make yourself feel better about it. Do the one that God has called you to do, not something close. Do that, and then you can be chasing down your life's very purpose. Your relationships will be full of love and peace if you do it God's way. You will accomplish whatever you set your mind to if you honor him. And I realize, oh, I don't know if you can say that. Yeah, you can. This is our Lord. I was like, go out there and do it and do it for me. And there's no reason to believe that you will not likewise prosper in your life. I want to make it my mission to reclaim the biblical doctrine of true prosperity from the false teachers who abuse it. Because those of us that are reacting against that weird stuff have turned us ourselves into like these Christian paupers and that's real Christianity. God doesn't want to give you anything. If you ask for it, how dare you? Let's be happy with what you've got. When you've got all these amazing verses that I read them out loud and we go, I don't know. Come on, guys. A life filled up to the brim is possible for all of us. If God has given it to you, then go get it, man. Go for it. That's what God has promised us. That's why you've got to be strong and very courageous because no one is going to hand it to you. Well, if it's God's will, it'll happen. How about if it's God's will, I better go get it. There were giants to slay, armies to manage, rivers to ford, personal issues to overcome. Joshua was going to need every ounce of his strength and courage. We've learned tonight that, number one, God has a plan for your life. Number two, righteousness makes us ready to fulfill it. Number three, you have to swing the sword to win the battle. And number four, success is guaranteed if you will do those things. Victory is not just a matter of your salvation. That comes first, and that is the greatest. But there's more. There's a whole abundant life that Jesus has for you. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So cultivate courage in your prayer, in faith, in your strength of will, and then you'll roll over that promised land like a mighty flood.